Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Authors Access, where authors get published and published authors get successful. Hi, I'm Irene Watson. I'm the managing editor of Reader Views. And I'm Tyler Tischler from Superior Book Promotions, filling in for Victor Volkman from Loving Healing Press. I'd like to welcome all our listeners to episode number 130 in our series. Tonight's topic will be book titles and trademarks. Know your rights with special guest Steve Gillen from Wood, Harrow, and Evans, LLP. You can learn more about our guests on the Authors Access website, which is authorsaccess.com. We would love to hear from you about tonight's show. Please send your questions and comments to info at authorsaccess.com. Tonight we're on the line with Stephen E. Gillen. Steve is an attorney with 30 years of experience in publishing media and copyright matters. He has been in private practice for 15 years, currently as a partner with 140-year-old intellectual property boutique firm Wood Heron and Evans in Cincinnati. Steve represents book and magazine publishers, media companies, corporations, authors, and creatives across the country. Prior to establishing his private practice, Steve spent 17 years in the educational publishing business with Southwestern Publishing Company, now a division of Cengage Learning. While with Southwestern, Steve worked as a copy editor, editor, executive editor, and for the last eight of his years there as corporate secretary and vice president of legal affairs. Welcome, Steve. We're glad to have you here tonight. Thanks, Tyler. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Well, this is really an honor to have you here, too, because uh, we're going to be talking about something that's really important, and I know that there are a lot of myths out there. In the legal part of this, uh, you know, the copyright and uh, the rights and so on, but also you have an experience as uh, working in a publishing company. So uh, you sort of come from a twofold and know what it's like to be an author. That's right. I've been involved in the business from just about every perspective for a pretty long time now longer yeah. than I like to think sometimes. Well, that's great. Every author I know thinks about, do I copyright my book or do I not copyright my book? Well, Irene, that's a, a, a bit of a misnomer, actually, because uh, you don't have a choice about that. In the United States, the copyright protection for your book happens as, uh, as a matter of course automatically the minute that you put pen to paper. So there's nothing formal that you have to do or decide to do for any author in the United States. And really, in most of the civilized world these days, the the mere act of creating an original work of expression and fixing it in a tangible medium so that other folks can access it causes copyright rights to attach automatically, immediately. So there you go. But why are there still companies that are offering copyright services for the authors? Well, there are some things uh, that you can do that put you as the author and owner, original owner of uh, the copyrights in your work, in a better position to police the use of your work and enforce your rights. And uh, one of those things costs you nothing. That's simply uh, using a copyright notice on uh, the uh, copies of your work that you make available for public inspection or distribution or sale. That's uh, simply the word copyright, C-O-P-Y-R-I-G-H-T, so it's the right to make copies. Uh, Sometimes folks use the circle C symbol as well, which most of your readers will have seen before. That's the international language neutral sign for copyright rights. Uh, 
coupled with the date, the year date of first publication, and then uh, your name as the copyright claim. That's, uh, in effect, your literary no trespassing sign. It, it puts the rest of the world on notice that that work that they're looking at, whatever it might happen to be, is a work that you claim to be the copyright owner of. And that, of course, as I said, costs you nothing. And, um, and uh, it is not a precondition of using the notice that you have done anything to formally register your claim. Although that, too, is available to you. So uh, if you choose, you can register your claim of copyright with the U.S. Copyright Office. It's a relatively simple procedure. You can do it online these days. The fee is $35 to the government for taking that step. The advantage of a copyright registration are multifold. Um, first, it uh, serves as a, a formal notice to the world, uh, anybody who cares to look, that you are the copyright owner of that particular work. It, um, By virtue of your registration, it gives you access to the possibility of uh, special remedies in the event that your work is infringed. These are remedies that wouldn't otherwise be available to you, and they include things like the ability to recover your attorney's fees if you have to sue someone. Uh, also, the ability to recover what are called statutory damages of up to $150,000 per work infringed without the need to prove that you suffered any actual monetary injury. That, uh, that uh, right uh, to make that award of up to $150,000 is uh, bestowed on the judge uh, in a trial and, and, uh, uh, or on the court. And so uh, uh, that's a powerful weapon to have at your uh, disposal uh, if you have to chase down an infringer. Now, you said the world. So I am assuming the boundaries aren't just within the United States, if this is where we reside. That's right. Uh, uh, intellectual property rights are, are, for the most part, territorial. So trademark rights, patent rights, copyrights you acquire, uh, at least initially, within a particular jurisdiction. But copyrights are somewhat unique in that respect because there are a couple of international conventions that most of the civilized countries in the world belong to, including the United States. And so within the circle of countries that have signed off on those conventions, you have the, the ability to uh, internationally enforce your, your, the rights that you register domestically in the United States. So with these conventions, then, they also, you know, uh, you said the freeway of uh, copywriting, just putting, you know, the notice or the fee or whatever. And so these conventions actually do sanction over that, too. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yes, they do. If you have complied with the uh, domestic requirements in your country for uh, claiming a copyright, that copyright will be enforced internationally by virtue of the, these uh, treaties. Steve, you mentioned um, the, the scary word there a few minutes ago, uh, sued. Um, and, of course, that's the reason I imagine most authors want their books copyrighted is they don't want people stealing their works and they don't want to, um, in the same token, um, be accused of stealing other people's works. So um, what can, can you explain to us what would happen How, like, if another author does publish Something that you wrote under your name. How how do you prove that that work is yours? Because I'm I'm what? thinking, especially in this internet age. I mean, I I started out writing books, you know, back um, handwriting my my manuscripts, and now we all you know we're all on computers all the time. So 
any document can be altered and changed, and I, I'm not sure how you would even prove that it's actually yours. So uh, can, can you kind of just explain that to us? Well, that's an interesting point that you make. Um, let's see. Um, where, where should I start? Uh, <laughs> the, the copyright is actually not a single right. It's a bundle of rights. And so the uh, initial author, the original owner of the copyright, starts out with a uh, uh, monopoly to do certain things with respect to that work. Uh, they uh, control reproduction of the work. They control uh, public distribution of the work. They control adaptation of the work. So that's an important one of the rights, is the right to control adaptations and make derivatives. Uh, another right is the uh, right to um, publicly display the work or publicly perform it if it's a work that's capable of performance and then with respect to music, there's a digital transmission right as well. So it's a bundle of uh, as many as six rights that belong exclusively to the copyright holder. I said that the adaptation right was a very important one, and, that, and the reason it's important is because what that tells us is that uh, it is not okay to start with someone else's copyrighted work even if you adapt it. There's no amount of change that you can introduce if you got a head start by starting with someone else's work that makes what you do, what you create, uh, not infringing. So it's not okay uh, to start with someone else's work and then uh, as a baseline and then uh, adapt it to your own purposes unless you have a license or consent from the original copyright owner. Now you also asked how does one go about proving that a, that a work is infringing, that it was copied, because Two works can be exactly the same, and that's not copyright infringement unless the way they came to be the same is that one was copied from the other. So it is at least theoretically possible that two authors in, on different uh, coasts uh, could uh, sit down at their table and write uh, a piece of poetry, and in both, both cases the, those poems would be the same, and that would not be infringing. And each one would have a copyright in his or her work. But uh, what you can't do is you can't get a head start by copying from someone else's work. That's why it's called a copy, C-O-P-Y, right, R-I-G-H-T. And so the problem that we have, if we want to prove infringement, if, if uh, someone else's work looks suspiciously similar to ours, uh, is uh, how do we prove that? Well, uh, there are a couple of ways. The one that happens least frequently is uh, that there are might be direct evidence of infringement, meaning that you observed the the defendant copy your work, or there is some concrete proof that they did that. Um, you know, they were captured on a video camera or captured on a, a recording, or uh, perhaps they admitted it uh, in some way. Um, it's relatively uncommon that you have that kind of evidence. And so, what we end up with is making what we call a circumstantial case of uh, copying. And we do that by establishing two things. First, we have to establish that it was possible or likely that the defendant had access to our work. Um, you can do that uh, if it was generally published, or you can do that if it was something that you sent uh, by letter for review and consideration, for example, and you can prove that the other party received it. Um, so you have to establish access in the first place. And then in the second place, you have to establish that the uh, accused work is so similar to yours that there, there, there is no likelihood that that similarity is coincidental. In other words, that, that it's so similar that it, the likelihood is that it 
got that way by virtue of some copy. And um, there are uh, lots of things that we can look at, um, uh, things like um, uh, peculiar, if it's a text work, for example, peculiar turns of phrase, um, uh, particular uh, ways of spelling things, even uh, mistakes sometimes, uh, grammatical mistakes that are repeated or spelling errors that are repeated from one work to another can help to establish that there was, in fact, uh, copying involved in that process. If it's uh, uh, a, a work, a pictorial, graphic, or sculptural work, then to the extent that the two works uh, appear the same, have uh, aesthetic qualities in common that aren't uh, in common because of artistic convention or design constraints or things like that, all of those things help to establish the likelihood that one work was copied rather than independently uh, arriving at that level of Okay, well that that makes perfect sense to me. Um, but that that makes me wonder, what about in terms of, and I've heard this term like intellectual property. If we're if we're not talking about a text like a actual word by word copying, but I'm I'm thinking more along the lines of like the case with uh, the author uh, Dan Brown of the Da Vinci Code being sued by the authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which was a mm-hmm. which was a nonfiction book, right. um, but. I guess he took their ideas to write his novel. So where 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 are the lines drawn in, in terms of of stealing someone's ideas and not necessarily the written words for your well, book? That uh that actually is a multi-level question. Uh in the in the at the first level, copyright protection exists only for a particular work of expression. It does not provide protection for the underlying facts or the underlying ideas that are expressed. And so the fact that you have a copyright uh, in the particular way that you have described an event or a scene doesn't give you a monopoly over that event or that it's seen, only a monopoly over the particular way that you've described it. Someone else can uh, re-describe that scene or uh, re-explain that idea as long as they do it in their own words without having copied your expression. Um, However, when we're talking about um, literary works, um, there are two kinds of copying. There's literal copying, where you copy uh, word for word, but there's also another form of copying. Um, that involves uh, copying, non-literal copying, copying the uh, uh, the structure or sequence or plot um, of a of a particularly of a f- fictional work where that that plot is a product of uh, uh, your author's imagination and uh, and a part of what they have uh, the expression that they have created, and so we we call that non-literal copying and uh, at, at a um, high enough level of abstraction, there are only a handful of plots. And so those are basic ideas and they're not capable of protection as a part of your copyright. But at a, as you get progressively uh, deeper into the detail, at some point you cross a line where that line is nobody can say with any uh, certainty. Uh, but at some point you cross a line and pick up too much of the underlying expression, non-literal expression in the form of the the plot details and character details and those sorts of things. So, Steve, that kind of brings me back to uh, something you had said earlier, and that was um, the word adapt. And what I'm what, what I'm noticing is happening, and I'm wondering if this actually crosses over the copyright 
laws cross over into the Internet as well. And specifically that you said that, uh, you know, the conventions uh, kind of sanction the whole world on this. So what happens is, uh, in my case, I get Google alerted pretty much every day where somebody has been using either block scraping or slogging and pulled off content of the website, either a review or an interview or uh, an article that uh, is copyrighted, it says so on our website. And for lack of another word, I can use some other choice words, you said adapt. And so they adapt this particular piece and insert links to either porno sites or Viagra sites or something that's mm-hmm. uh, obnoxious. And it, it seems to me that, you know, it, this is encouraged because there are programs out there that are either given free or they are uh, sold to do this blogging or blog scraping and to, you know, to do the adaptations. And I'm just kind of wondering, who is sanctioning this? Or who is no, actually you know, looking after this? It's absolutely not okay. Now, as the copyright owner, it's your it, it falls to you uh, to enforce your rights. You can't sue everybody all the time. Uh, you have to make some uh, decision about that. But certainly with, within your uh, power, within your right uh, to sue these infringers if you can find them. The, there's a uh, you know I think a fairly common misconception that if you find it on the internet, it's in the public domain, and that couldn't be further from the truth. As I said, the only thing that is required generally is that you have fixed your original expression in a tangible medium and the rights attach automatically. So are you aware of uh, anybody actually doing anything about this? You know, when I get alerted and I look, and quite often in most cases, probably 99% of the cases, uh, it's a, you know, free WordPress blog and they come up with some who knows what for a URL and there's no contact information. I have contacted uh, some of the ISP holders and just really get brushed off. There's really nothing that, you know, anybody seems to want to get involved in. Right. Well, uh, I represent a lot of publishers, and the Uh publishers that I represent uh, have a common complaint against the uh, uh, BitTorrent sites and uh, uh, sites that uh, specialize in making pirated copies of their works available for free free download. And uh, uh, a lot of this activity happens offshore, happens outside of the boundaries of the United States. And where that happens, uh, we can't reach them with our laws. We have to go and sue them someplace else, and that that can be uh, problematic. There has been uh, uh, some legislation that's proposed um, up for consideration in in the uh, current uh, Congress called the Rogue Sites uh, Act, and what that would uh, provide, it would provide the Attorney General with an ability to request the court to order that a URL be seized. so that even if the uh, operator is uh, um, offshore, that uh, we would have the ability here uh, to to, uh, uh, seize the uh, URL that that operator is using and also uh, provides uh, uh, a prohibition against um, uh, payment processors, credit card companies and PayPal and the like, from processing uh, payments um, that are uh, uh, associated with these uh, sites. So uh, t- take their opportunity to make money away and take their ability to communicate away at least at least uh, one URL at a time. 
Well, I'm really glad to hear not, that. That actually, that's that, not. It's not law yet, yes. but it's uh, being considered. Good. Well, I can imagine that's going to be one of the most busiest departments for a while. It's also the case that uh, even if a a, um, a business is operated offshore, if they are using a, an internet service provider domestically, that you can serve what's called a takedown demand on the um, uh, domestic host for that site. And under U.S. law, there's a provision of the Copyright Act that says that uh, that these uh, internet service providers, as long as they're just providing a uh, communication service and not involved in in an editorial way in generating the content or managing the content, that they have uh, immunity from suit for infringement that's not directed by them but directed by their um, their users. Uh, but in order to take advantage of that immunity, uh, they have to respond to complaints by taking down the infringing material. So if you uh, find a domestic host who is uh, uh, serving up this content that you complain of, uh, you can um, make what is called a takedown demand, and they uh, are obliged to respond to that. Steve, um, it's still on the topic here of the Internet. Um, I, I work as an editor, I, a freelance editor for several. Um, I have authors all the time sending me books. I get lots of self-help books. And they tend, the authors, like you said, they seem to think whatever's on the Internet is just free game. And so I'm always, like, reminding them they need to contact these owners of these websites for permission. And a lot of stuff that they want to uh, print in their books is the kind of stuff that you get forwarded in emails, you know, those kind of sentimental poems or jokes, things like that that they feel are illustrating their points. Um, I had I had one the other day who... She said it was like uh, it was written as like a story that she had gotten in a Christmas card, and she wanted to insert it in her book, and it said author unknown. Well, when I was looking at, it, I realized it was a poem, and then I Googled it, and it turned out it was a poem by Helen Steiner Rice. So I told her you have to write to the foundation if you if you want to use that. Um, so I guess it, uh, my question is is two part. One. Um, all of these things that you find online that say anonymous or author unknown, how how safe is it really to use them? In her case, we found out it wasn't anonymous, and a lot of them are slightly altered because they've been passed around so many times that people are reposting um, incorrect ones. Mm -hmm. And then uh, my, the other part of my question is um, when when you when you uh, ask people to use their um, their work to reprint their work. What do you need to do to make sure that they don't end up suing you later? Okay. Well, let's uh, let's start with the first part of your question first. Um, you, that is a problem, and there is uh, no way uh, to be sure. Certainly, as the uh, as the editor or the publisher, there's no no independent search that you can do that will absolutely assure you that the material provided by your authors is original and not copied from someplace it shouldn't be. You really are at their mercy, and if they are copying from sources that they haven't checked the provenance of, uh, with the uh, you know, with the uh, um, expectation, right or wrong, that that material's in the public domain, they're at risk unless unless they've done their homework. In some cases, you can still be misled. Copyright infringement is uh, a no-fault uh, claim, so it, it's uh, it, there's no requirement that you be negligent, only that you copied uh, somebody else's protected work without their consent or without some excuse, like uh, a uh, claim of um, fair use. Uh, 
Uh, and if you uh, have done that, then you're uh, responsible as an infringer. So, uh, you know, I guess the the uh, uh, what what publishers do uh, to protect themselves is uh, number one, they uh, include in their publishing contracts a warranty that has the author representing to them and warranting to them that there's no infringing material in what is being delivered to the publisher. So. If the publisher gets sued, the publisher has recourse against the author. Now, that we know that as between authors and publishers, the authors aren't the one with the deep pockets. Um, and so publishers uh, back up that warranty with a media perils insurance policy that provides insurance coverage for them in the event that they get sued on one of these grounds. Um, now, uh, you also asked this the second part of your question. What does one do to make sure that you've got uh, adequate permission? The uh, U.S. copyright law has a, um, a writing requirement so that if you are uh, going to acquire from someone else either the ownership of their copyright or any exclusive right with respect to their copyright, that transaction has to be in writing and signed or it won't be enforceable. But uh, if what you are after is a non-exclusive right, which is uh, generally what a reprint permission would be, there is no writing requirement. So um, as a matter of law, you're not required to get that consent in writing, although as a practical matter, you may have difficulty proving that you got consent if you don't have some writing or some evidence that, that it was in fact granted. So the better practice is always to get those permissions in writing or uh, somehow uh, have evidence that permission wasn't granted. Okay. Um, now, in what situations um, would you necessarily need permission? You, you used the term fair use recently, or just a, a minute ago, and I'm wondering, in terms of, uh, like, for example, in, in academia, uh, as a scholar, as a literary scholar, um, I used to. Uh, you know, I'd write these these lengthy research works, and I quote passages from books. So, what what counts as fair use? Like, is there is there a certain number of words that you're allowed to reproduce without permission? No, there is no bright line test um, for uh, fair use, and that that too is a misconception. And you hear different stories from different places. But uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, that there is no uh, bright line safe harbor. Uh, absolutely always acceptable number of words that you can copy. In the United States, um, we have uh, something unique. We have uh, the a Constitution, and that Constitution has the First Amendment, which provides for freedom of press and freedom of uh, speech. And that's unique to the United States. And, and uh, when it comes to uh, copyright rights in the United States, we have to balance the monopoly power of the author on the one hand, against the free speech rights of the population on the other. And that, that balance has given rise to a doctrine that we call the doctrine of fair use, which allows uh, individuals to quote limited portions of otherwise copyrighted works for purposes such as uh, criticism or scholarship or commentary or um, uh, classic teaching. In uh, As long as the use is fair, you don't have to get consent for that. But the keys there are that the purpose has to be proper. Uh, the uh, amount of material that you can borrow is limited, and it has to be 
uh, it has to be attributed. You can't pass it off as your own. Very interesting. So provided that you and and uh, literary review uh, uh, criticism, scholarly criticism, those are commonly uh, 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 thought of as justifications for exercise of this fair use right. I'm going to do a little switch here and talk about uh, covers and titles. Now, you know, some people seem to think that uh, titles can be copyrighted. Others obviously know it can't be, and there are, I think, I forget uh, now, but it seemed to me there was a title that came in for a review, and, geez, it sounds familiar, and I checked, and there was like, I don't know, close to 30 books that had that same title, so obviously titles cannot be copyrighted. But what about covers? And if you would just address both the title and the cover. Well, uh, it is, in fact, the case that the title of a book is not protected by the copyright in the book. Uh, copyrights, as I said, uh, provide protection for authorship, the authorship contained in a book. That, that would uh, include things like the text of the book, photos and illustrations, and uh, even the cover design as well, to the extent that the cover design is something more creative than what we would think of as a type solution. But um, um, copyright protection is limited in the United States to authorship that consists of original expression. So there has to be some minimum threshold of creativity. We don't provide protection for single words or short faces, phrases or for type solutions or for simple geometric forms. There has to be something more. And uh, the, the question is, how much does it take? And again, um, like so many things in copyright, there's no bright line test. You know, the longest book title ever uh, was comprised of 53 words. It was a book written by Samuel Penhallow. Are you ready for the title? Oh boy, go ahead. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> it goes like this. The history of the wars of New England with the Eastern Indians, or a narrative of their continued perfidy and cruelty from the 10th of August, 1703, to the peace renewed 13th of July, 1713, and from the 25th of July, 1722, to their submission 15th December, 1725, which was ratified August 5th, 1726. That was the title. Whoa. Okay. So, As long as it is, because it's a book title, there's no uh, copyright protection for that. Um, however, uh, on the other hand, there's a, a, um, a poem written by Carl Sandburg in, a, in the early 1900s called Fog. This poem is uh, six short lines, 21 total words, and uh, so it's half the length of that book title, and there's no doubt in my mind that that poem, as an entire complete creative expression, is protected by copyright. Interesting. Well, at least that title um, is very good for search engine optimization. <laughs> <laughs> so it's one good thing to look at. I just want you to address work for hire. There seems to be some confusion there, too, as to holding the copyright when there is a work for hire agreement. I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? Oh, okay, sorry. There seems to be some confusion on the work for hire and who holds the copyright. So I'd like you to just address that part. Okay, well, um, in the United States, we have this concept called work made for hire. And it's a concept that uh, arose uh, initially with respect to... Um, Circumstances where an employer hired employees uh, for the purpose, expressly for the purpose of creating copyrightable works. 
And under those circumstances where it was the, um, uh, an employee hired for that express purpose, treated as an employee, and uh, able to avail himself or herself of all of the laws, the panoply of laws that we have that protect employees in an employment relationship, under those circumstances, the employer was considered to be the author of the work that resulted from that employment for copyright purposes. So um, the uh, one instance of work for hire is where an employee has been hired for the purpose of creating copyrightable works, but that needs to be a true employer-employee situation. It can't be an independent contractor or a freelancer situation. Even if... Um, even if the freelancer has been the independent contractor, has been specially commissioned, and has paid a lot of money, one-time fee, uh, that doesn't alter the character of the work in that circumstance. That that work is not going to be work made for hire if it didn't uh, arise in a true employment situation. There is now a provision in U.S. Uh, in the U.S. copyright statute that allows uh, work created by independent con- contractors to be uh, deemed work made for hire by agreement between the parties, but there are some very strict limitations on the application of that work made for hire uh, by agreement doctrine. Uh, the work has to have been specially ordered or commissioned. It can't be a work that comes in partially completed already. It, the agreement that it's going to be a work made for hire has to have been uh, reached in advance of the creation of the work. Uh, the agreement has to be reduced to writing and signed by both parties, and this will only work with respect to certain categories of works that are listed in the copyright statute, and they include things like instructional texts, uh, like uh, contributions to a, a collective work, like uh, an atlas, like uh, tests or answer material for tests, um, but they do not include things like computer programs or um, music. Huh. And so there are a lot of folks who mistakenly believe that if they went out and specially uh, commissioned their work and paid for that work, that it was work made for hire, and that's often not the case. So basically what so, you're also saying, that it's really important to have a contract, uh, even for yeah, somebody right. that, uh, you know, even though you commission and you are, they're a contractor, you still need to have a written contract that they revoke the copyright? Is that how that goes? Well, it's critically important that the commissioning party have a uh, written agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, whether they want the work to be considered a work made for hire or whether they want a uh, transfer of the uh, copyright ownership or whether they would settle for just a one exclusive right in the bundle of copyright rights, they aren't going to get any of those things in the absence of a written signed agreement. The best um, that they can claim as a result of an oral transaction is a non-exclusive license, and that license, if the transaction is oral or if it's implied from conduct, is going to be of uncertain scope and duration. Um, Steve, what about in, in the sense of, um, well, I, I, I know a situation where an author hired an illustrator to do illustrations for the work, paid the illustrator, and so then those illustrations, um, does the illustrator still own those illustrations and can use them in other places, or does it, it just depends on the contract? And, and what if right. you have, um, by comparison, an author and an illustrator who decide to do a book together? Mm-hmm. They should then have a contract to make it all equal? They, they split the profits? and 
Well, those are two very different circumstances with very different legal results. In the first, if the author has commissioned an illustrator to create illustrations for a book, but the work wasn't collaborative in the sense that the two of them worked together, then there needs to be a written agreement in order for the author who commissioned that work to be able to claim either ownership or any exclusive right in the illustrations. And in the absence of a written agreement, how much the author paid for these works, the best that the author is going to have is a non-exclusive license to use them, which means that the illustrator can go out and sell reproduction rights to others. In the second uh, situation, you suggested that the two of them collaborated, uh, that they worked together um, uh, to merge their two contributions into uh, uh, an interdependent whole. Perhaps a you know a heavily illustrated children's book where the story and the illustrations are woven tightly together, and in that instance uh, we have what's called a joint work, and they are joint authors, and the joint authors uh, share an undivided uh, proportional interest in the resulting work. And so uh, the illustrator doesn't own the illustrations anymore author doesn't own the text anymore. They each have a one-half interest in the whole. And in the absence of a written agreement, again, the default rule is going to be that they share equally. And it doesn't matter uh, what proportion of labor they contributed. So if there were two co-authors, for example, of a ten-chapter text, and one of them wrote nine chapters, and one of them wrote one chapter, but they did that collaboratively, Worked uh, with each other on their uh, on the chapters that they each took primary responsibility for, so that in fact they ended up with a joint work. It wouldn't matter that one of them had 90% of the work and the other had 10%; they would still share 50/50 in the ownership of that work. Either one of the joint owners at that point can independently exploit the work on a non-exclusive basis without the consent of the other, subject only to a duty, each to the other, to account for what they've done and share their profits pro rata. Okay, that that was kind of what I expected, but that, that makes sense. Well, gosh, Steve, this has been so much information. <laughs> it's like I'm, I'm in overwhelm here. I'm going to have to listen and re-listen to this interview because you've given us so many pointers. And uh, thank you very much for taking the time and and giving us all this information I uh, really, really appreciate it. What is your website address? How can our listeners actually get in contact with you? Well, uh, the website for Wood, Heron, and Evans uh, is at www.whepatent.com. Whepatent.com. Okay, and you can be reached there. Yes. Yes. Yeah, thanks a lot. I really appreciate you showing up and giving us this information. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure talking to both of you, Irene and Tyler. You've been listening to another podcast edition of Authors Access, where authors get published and published authors get successful. You can learn more about our guest on the Authors Access website, which is authorsaccess.com. Stay tuned for the next episode, Dispelling the Myth of Subsidy Presses with special guest Brent Sampson from Outskirts Press. We would love to hear from you about tonight's show. Please send your questions and comments to info at authorsaccess.com. 
Authors Access is a joint production of Reader Views, Inc., and Loving Healing Press. And for Reader Views, this is Irene Watson in Austin, Texas, saying good night. And I'm Tyler Tischler for Spear Book Promotions, filling in for Victor Volkman from Loving Healing Press. Good evening. Good evening.